Thank you, Chandra. You have just played the prayer of every pastor as he stands at a pulpit. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Somewhere in a shoebox or an envelope waiting to be sorted on one of those quiet Sundays that never comes, I have something called a ministerial license. By my last memory of having seen it, it's a standard credit card-sized laminated sort of thing that informs whoever reads it that I am authorized by the World Church to perform certain functions in its name and on its behalf. For decades, I, I faithfully carried some version of it in my wallet, always waiting for the day when some poor innocent would say, prove to me that you really are a preacher in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now you know why it's moldering in some shoebox or in some unsorted envelope. For in 36 years of doing this, no one has ever asked me even once to see it. It's all mildly disappointing to be carrying a credential that no one wants to see. Nonetheless, I am going to invoke that ministerial license this morning, or perhaps better for our terms, a preacher's license to reframe the assignment that I agreed to with my peers in this planning this series on the book of Mark. I want to go just a little beyond my assigned chapter in chapter 8. Those of you who know something about the versification of our current versions of the Bible know how utterly random and whimsical are the divisions between chapters and verses. Remember that Mark wrote in undivided text in longhand with no sections, no chapters, and no verses. And maybe that will help you tolerate my request that we reach back to the tale of chapter 7 and bring forward a story that I think belongs with the one you have just heard from chapter 8. To my way of thinking, and I hope to yours, the last verses of chapter 7 actually belong with the story of Jesus healing the blind man that we find in Mark 8, 22 to 26. You see, this thing called preaching the word, it really isn't about learning to color inside the lines or to follow the frame of some other human construction. It's about discovering the power, the utterly recreating power of Jesus Christ in our lives. If you've never been broken in your life, if you've never experienced pain or loss or disease or suffering or questions or doubt or aches that kept you awake in the middle of the night, this isn't your sermon. You have my permission to tune me out and turn down your hearing aid. But if your life has been touched by brokenness, if you have a need for healing that I have found common to every real human life I've ever met, if you've ever wondered why the healing stories of the Gospel of Mark don't seem to be available to you and to those you love, maybe there's something here in these next few moments worth listening to. I want you to hear that first story of Jesus healing one sufferer as recorded in Mark chapter 7, not 8. 
They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, which is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. If I ended our consideration of Mark's stories of Jesus right there this morning, you'd probably feel a lot more comfortable than you're going to feel in the next few moments. We love the clear, straightforward story of Jesus healing the deaf-mute man because it says something so central about the character and the compassion of Jesus. We've given our lives to him. He is compassionate. For all of us who have ever felt marginalized because of some physical challenge, or because of our ethnic background, or because of the language we speak, or our racial identity, or some emotional challenge in our life, the message of Jesus' healing compassion speaks to us better than any bomb in Gilead. When all others relegate us to the margins because we aren't as cool and smooth and sophisticated and clever as they are, Jesus never does. The story I just read you from Mark 7 ends with the sense of being wrapped in the arms of the one who is the lover of our souls. Which is why we almost never read the story in chapter 8. In fact, if you search through commentaries on the book of Mark, if you look at the authors who regularly chronicle the stories of Jesus' healing miracles, you will find very little, almost nothing, about this very peculiar story of healing that Mark records in chapter 8 and verses 22 to 26. Truth be told, and this isn't fully comfortable, even when you go to the writings of Ellen White, who in 70 years of public ministry commented on almost every available story of Scripture, you will have to be a better scholar than I am to find even one reference to this story in Mark 8, 22 to 26. And I make so bold this morning is to tell you that I think the virtual absence of comment about this story is because it presents us with a problem about Jesus and about healing. And what's true in most of our daily lives is also true when preachers come to pick a passage of scripture to talk about. It's a whole lot easier to turn to one of the glowing narratives in the Gospel of John than to deal with the story of Uzzah who was struck down because he laid his hand on the ark to steady it. It's a lot easier for a preacher to imagine a straightforward sermon about Jesus healing instantaneously than to talk about a story where healing happens over time and in stages and has something to do with the faith of the one being healed. The story itself, as Mark tells it to us in chapter 8, starts simply enough 
but it raises questions that get to the heart of the matter of how it is that Jesus intends in the 21st century as in the first century to bring healing and restoration into our lives. The text says they came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on him again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. As in so many other cases, and just like the one where we read at the end of Mark 7, some people brought a sufferer to Jesus. Notice, first of all, it was an act of kindness by the friends of some suffering person. It was an act of faith to go and find someone they cared about and bring that person into the very presence of the one who, more than anyone in the universe, could create a change in their circumstances. I like to think that Jesus must have deeply loved those men and women who were always bringing their friends forward to be healed. They weren't the ones getting the miracle. They weren't the ones in need of the cure, but out of their love for some poor, afflicted soul, they would do anything they had to do to make sure that person reached the side of Jesus, even if that meant tearing off the roof of a house or pushing through crowds of thousands. You see, Jesus appreciates faith like that. Jesus' power can work where there is faith like that. And so today... Even if you're not the one in need of the cure, even if your heart has already been healed by Jesus, keep bringing your friends to him. He loves you for it. He loves you for it. But there was also an entirely practical reason why others brought this man to Jesus. A moment's thought will make that clear. There was no way that a blind man by himself was ever going to get to the side of Jesus and push through hundreds of disciples and followers and even critics without assistance. If I were to ask you to shut your eyes and to get up from your seat and to make your way to that car you just parked in the lot 45 minutes ago without looking, Almost no one here could do it without assistance. The first lesson of Mark 8 is that healing usually requires assistance. Not only the assistance of the gentle healer himself, but the assistance, the embrace of other people who care about us and love us and encourage us. What follows next in the text is one of the strangest miracles in the whole Bible and certainly one of the most unusual that Jesus ever performed. And when we read this story from the vantage point of a highly educated, scientific, disease-conscious culture, what Jesus did in healing this blind man initially sounds both bizarre 
and medically unsound. The text tells us he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village and he put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him. Notice with me that just as he did with the deaf mute man whose story we read in Mark 7, Jesus takes this man out of the crowd. He takes him out of the throng, out of the jostling mob where a blind man would certainly feel confused and disoriented. He takes him to a place where the two of them can react and interact alone. But there's, this is just another of the reasons why I'm convinced that the story at the end of Mark 7, where Jesus does exactly this with a deaf-mute man, belongs in the same chapter with this one where he heals a blind man. In both cases, friends bring the sufferer to Jesus, and in both cases, Jesus then takes the person off to a place where they can be alone. All of you have already noticed, however, the most obvious similarity between these stories. Jesus takes spittle. He takes saliva from his mouth. And he anoints the part of the sufferer's body where the affliction is most acute. The tongue in one case, the eyes in the other. Well, this doesn't sound like accepted medical practice from the perspective of the American Medical Association, Jim. Perhaps if Jesus was being judged by the body of knowledge required of any medical student in the land, he would appear to be failing miserably. Maybe you also grew up with the idea that spitting of any kind was vulgar, unsanitary practiced only by uncouth baseball players with large wads of chewing tobacco. Why is the Lord of all creation, the one who created the human body, the Lord of all true science, why is he doing such strange things with a man already disadvantaged by blindness? Our text tells us that Jesus put saliva on his eyes. This phrase probably causes more consternation to 21st century minds than any other part of this story. After having beaten back the scourges of typhus and tuberculosis and diphtheria and a host of other communicable diseases, it seems incredible to us that anyone, even a person who lived a long time ago, could have ever believed that spittle had anything to do with healing. But that's exactly what was believed in the time of Jesus. And we have a lot of historical data to substantiate it. The Roman historian Tacitus tells us a tale of the emperor Vespasian. And Tacitus maintains that when Vespasian's spittle was placed on the eyes of a blind man, the blind man could see again. He said it. Pliny the Elder. Another Roman historian gives us a long list of things that can be cured by applying spittle to them. You might want to note this. Snake bite, epilepsy, leprosy, boils, blindness, and men get this, back trouble. There's no doubt that the people of Jesus' time firmly believed that spittle was one of the best means of curing a host of maladies. And just to prove that they weren't entirely ridiculous, tell me, 
Where does every one of you first put your finger when you touch it on a hot stove? In your mouth, of course. If this were the only time, however, that we find Jesus using the form of some folk remedy for healing, we'd probably ignore the point as unimportant. But on at least two other occasions recorded in the Gospels, we find Jesus using spittle as part of the healing of a sufferer. And what these incidents reveal is that Jesus, even though he is the Lord of creation and of science, he condescends, he agrees to use the forms of healing that were believed in and trusted by the people of his time. He could have given the blind that he healed a lecture on the causes of ophthalmia, but he didn't. He could have instructed those with crippled hands and feet on the marvelous intricacy of the joints that he had himself created, but he didn't. He might have impressed those with whom, from whom he was casting out demons with a recitation of the names and ranks of all of the fallen angels who were now torturing the human race, but he didn't because Jesus never says any unnecessary words. He wanted his message to be clearly grasped by men and women with little or no education. Men and women whose minds were sometimes clouded like ours are with things like superstitions and folk remedies and what might work when all else fails. Did the spittle do even a little bit of the healing? Of course not. But Jesus sought to use any device that might call out faith in the mind of the one with whom he was dealing. And if it took spittle, then that's what Jesus would use. You see, Jesus cares less about textbook method than he does about tired people. Jesus is concerned less with what scientists will think of his technique than what sinners will think of his touch. And I'll guarantee you this, if you were one of those in line hoping for a miracle, you wouldn't have cared if he used spit or mud or axle grease so long as you got your cure. Let me be the first to say, my friends, that the medicine practiced by the Lord of healing was excellent medical practice and not magic. The spittle of Jesus didn't have some healing quality in it that's unavailable to yours. No container of the spittle of Jesus was any more efficacious than a container of your own. This blind man, who was unable to use his primary sense organs to understand the scene unfolding around him, he hears Jesus spitting into those divine hands. And then he feels the gentle touch of those hands on his eyelids. He feels the touch of the same one who once formed Adam from the dust of the earth. And the same Lord who once produced light in the eyes of that first man who couldn't see. He now produces light in the eyes of an anonymous blind man outside the village of Bethsaida. 
The blind man now begins a process in his own mind which has an immediate connection to the healing that's going to happen to him. Faith begins to form in his mind. Faith, because he believed in the curative power of spittle, no doubt. And faith also because he knew that he was dealing with a gentle healer who actually believed he was going to do something that would restore him. The blind man absorbs. He sees the faith in Jesus. And that mustard seed of faith, tiny as it is, it lands in the withered crevice of his heart and it begins to crack and it begins to swell and it begins to grow and it sends out shoots and pretty soon it is bursting into bloom. But now comes that unsettling moment in the story. That unusual part that makes it almost like no other miracle story of Jesus. Jesus asks him a question, as if to test and find out if the miracle has been effective. Can you see anything? Can you see anything? It's the kind of question we might expect to hear from an eye surgeon as he removes the patches from a patient who has for 30 days been recovering from radical eye surgery. Can you see anything yet? Was the surgery effective? Will you be cured? And what bothers us at some baseline level of our faith is that we don't expect Jesus to be asking any questions about the effectiveness of his healing. Can there really be a question about whether his healing is effective? Jesus, the great creator and recreator, the former and the reformer, the one who made the original and the one who fixed it when it was broken, he now seems to be asking as if there could be a doubt that his miracle has been effective. Is this actually doubt on Jesus' part or some question of the likelihood of his success? How could it be that the one of whom Colossians says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together, how could it be that he would not always succeed just as he intended with all of the instant skill and effectiveness that only he has? But it wasn't a foolish question. It wasn't a throwaway. Jesus wasn't engaging in some test of his capacity as a healer. He wasn't doing as some of those televangelist healers that I see late Saturday night seem to do. He wasn't trying to amp the drama of the situation by laying his hands on a second time. It was a real question. And it got a painfully real answer. I can see people but they look like trees walking. The man says this, no doubt rubbing his eyes that are being washed by natural tears for the first time in many years. I can see people, but they look like trees walking. So he must have been sighted at some time in the past. Something had happened. 
Something dramatic had happened. Light was now flowing through the functioning aperture of a lens and being projected on a retina wall that hadn't seen light for many years. Nerves and neurons that for decades had been inactive were now thrilling with new energy that was traveling, well, let's say it, it was traveling at the speed of light. But it's not yet finally effective. The vision is still partial. The effect is still limited. The objects glimpsed aren't yet fully seen. And the most important thing to that man, and the most important thing to Jesus, the ability to connect with other human beings, that goal hadn't yet been achieved. Was Jesus somehow stumbling as a healer? Was this, as some of my medical friends sometimes privately confess happens to them, was this a moment when his powers of concentration were at low ebb? Was the fact that the man, man could now only dimly see stick figures a reflection of the power of Jesus or a reflection of something else? If you're looking for a reason why we usually never tell this gospel story, you've just found it. At first glance, it seems to say something about the power and the effectiveness of Jesus and his healing that makes us wince and, and turn away. Preacher, uh, let's stay with the story of the deaf-mute man. Uh, that one ends the way it should. The deaf-mute man speaks, he hears, who knows, he probably even sings out of gratitude at the end. But a man whose sight, at least initially, only seems partially restored, well, we'd, we'd rather not hear that story. You'd probably rather not preach it. So go on to the next story, preacher. Next story, please. Notice with me, my friends, that Jesus doesn't leave this man with halfway finished healing. And notice with me that the moment in this story that appears to cause us the greatest anxiety apparently caused Jesus no anxiety at all. When he discovers, as only great attentiveness can discover, that the result isn't yet what he planned, he stays with the suffering one until the final result is assured, until the vision has dawned, until light finally, clearly, he stays with it until he can say when he first looked out on light on our world, it's good. It's really, really good. No capacity of Jesus was being tested here. He holds uncreated, unimaginable power in his hand. No blemish on his record of healing, either of darkened eyes or darkened minds. Is ever a possibility, my friends. Remember, remember that it is clay that he is molding. It's the dust of the earth of which we are formed. It's the physical stuff of refuse and imperfection and flaws and brokenness and mistakes and damaged DNA and the results of our personal choices that all flow together into the bodies where his healing must be exhibited. 
It's the stuff in us and not the stuff in him that requires the miracle in two stages. It's the incapacities in us and not the deficiencies in Jesus that trigger our resistive power to slow down or even stop the miracle he wishes to happen. Any potter can tell you that there is no such thing as perfect clay. Any farmer can tell you that there is no such thing as perfect dirt or perfect dust. Any physician here can tell you that the most physically fit, wonderfully proportioned, athletically toned, chocolate avoiding, plant food based consuming person still can resist perfect health if there is such a thing as perfect health. All of us have in ourselves, consciously or unconsciously, the power to resist and even block the healing processes that God may want to bring into our lives, particularly into our spiritual and emotional and relational lives. We, we push back. We do. Sometimes with our hands, more often with our minds. We fail to align our will with the will of the one who ultimately will succeed in everything he plans. You want healing for your addiction to pornography, but not at the cost of cutting your premier cable subscription. You want Jesus to be the Lord of all the money you possess, but not quite all the percentage of the tithe he says is his. You intend for Jesus to be the Prince of Peace and to heal all your relationships, but, but not at the cost of giving up your acid tongue. My friends, we are most frequently the ones who interrupt the miracles that Jesus wants to do for us. We give our good intentions to the healing even while our naturally obstinate, sinful souls push back, slow down, and sometimes even stop what Jesus would so much like to do in our broken hearts, our wounded relationships. Why does the healing of reconciliation between two Christians who've hurt each other not happen? Because one or both of them still cling to the memory of the angry words that were said in some moment of passion. We hold on to the bitter record, all the injuries we endured. Why does the healing power that ought to accompany the preaching of the word every Sabbath, why does it so rarely yield much change in us? Why do we go home from worship services stirred? but never shaken? Because we hold the word at arm's length instead of letting it lodge in our heart. I will tell you, when I walk into this sanctuary every Sabbath, I have to pray about the preparation of my heart for what the preacher will say. I have a naturally resistant heart. Maybe you do too. And if the word is not lodging in our heart and transforming us, it is because we have not yet opened by prayer and supplication 
the gates to our heart. Why does the healing of depression, a process that usually takes time and support and the involvement of skilled professionals, why does our trajectory so typically fall short of the joyful and abundant lives that Jesus wants for us? Most often because of the pain of our past pulls us backward to life patterns, to habits, into dysfunctional relationships. We find ourselves doubting that anyone so quiet and calm and collected as Jesus would want to have anything to do with persons as messed up as we are. My friends, Jesus heals us in stages because we only rarely are ready for us, for him to heal us all at once. Jesus heals us in stages because we are only rarely ready for him to heal us all at once. His will of perfect restoration at a time known to him is slowed down. It's delayed. Sometimes it's even stopped because in his wisdom, he has given us the gift of free will, of free choice. And scripture makes it clear, my friends, that we ultimately must choose his healing before it can happen in our lives. I don't mean that you want it the way some of you want the Redskins to win the Super Bowl or the way that you wish for a snow day deep in January. We must want his healing in the same soul-hungering way that a child dreams about a coming birthday. It wasn't for nothing that Jesus asked a crippled man beside a pool, do you want to be healed? Do you really want to be healed? His ability to heal our broken bodies and our wounded spirits and our fractured relationships and our deepest sins, his ability is never in question, but our willingness to be completely transformed now, at least with me, that's often a different matter. Well, you say, how does this work with physical healing? I pray with all the passion in me for the healing in my own body, or more typically the healing in the body of someone I love. And I do not see it happening. And I remind you that he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He is working with dust and clay and a history composed of things both conscious and unconscious. He is also working for our healing on a timeline that is frequently mysterious to us. But in the realm of the human spirit, in the world of painful relationships, in the dynamics of overcoming struggles and addictions and weaknesses and habits, my friends, we get about as much healing as we really want. It sounds dangerous to say. But in those realms, at least, we get about as much healing as we really want. 
We often tell stories the other way. We typically point to instantaneous, immediate transitions from disease to wholeness, from sickness to health, and we tell those stories as though they were normative. But the reality, for all of us who have ever skinned our knees or skinned our hearts, is that healing is a process. Healing is a process. While Jesus may choose in his mercy and with the agreement of your sovereign will to instantly do the thing that needs doing, the vast majority of us who can testify to Jesus' healing in our lives will tell you that we are talking about weeks and months and years and sometimes decades. It's a testimony to the tenacity of our brokenness that it sometimes takes 50 years or more to heal a broken life. I know. I testify. You know this story too, I think. You know that while we long for instant change, our lives more typically need realignment that only happens over time. The life changes that build a platform for Jesus' ongoing healing in our lives, they take weeks or, or months or years to finally settle into the crevice in our souls and crack and swell and send out roots and send up shoots and one day begin to bear fruit. Healing is more typically a process and not an event. A process and not an event. As we agree with God, as we learn to agree with his word and his plan for our lives, as, as we choose to move beyond the brokenness of today to the abundance that Jesus wants to give us tomorrow, we're going to be like those lepers that Luke writes about in chapter 10, his gospel. It says of those lepers, as they went, they were healed. As they went, they were healed. Healing is more often a process. The miracle when it comes in this story, the, the miracle is almost anticlimactic. We knew Jesus could do it. We never really doubted it for a moment, but what seems truly miraculous about this story to those of us who live in a world where people's feelings so often get brutalized and their lives get broken, what seems incredible is that marvelous sensitivity of Jesus, his willingness to engage one-on-one -on -one with people who suffer and to tailor his healing to their unique needs and even their beliefs. When I know down deep that Jesus will never relate to me as just another member of the human race, just another member of the church, just another sorry sinner steeped in sin and sliding toward hell, when I know that he will always take the time to listen to my personal story of my life, that he will never interrupt or object but that he will listen and accept it. My heart goes out to him, and I fall at his feet, 
wonder and joy. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Today I hold him up to you, O Lord, who has healing in mind and healing over time.